Section 21 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12, The Position of the Emperor. After studying the lives of the early emperors in some detail, it may be well to call attention to the marked peculiarities of the position which they held. Number 1. Henceforth the emperor is virtually the sole source of law, for all the authorities quoted in the codes are embodiments of his will. As magistrate, he issued edicts in accordance with old usage in connection with the higher offices which he held, as did the praetors of earlier days. When sitting judicially, he gave decrees. He sent mandates to his own officials and rescripts when consulted by them. He named the authorized jurists whose responses had weight in the nice points of law. Above all, he guided the decisions of the Senate whose Senatus Consulta took the place of the forms of the Republican legislation. 2. He was called on also to interpret law, either in the ordinary course of his functions when he served as yearly magistrate or as the High Court of Appeal from the sentences of lower tribunals or through the Senate which became a court of judicature for large classes of trials and looked constantly for imperial guidance. We read often in the lives of the earlier rulers of the unremitting care with which they took part in such inquiries. 3. As head of the executive, the emperor must enforce the law. Most of the officials soon became his nominees, though a few of the dignified posts were filled up with some show of free election in the Senate but the master of the legions holds the power of the sword and cannot share it with others if he would. The power so expressed was unique in kind. It extended over the whole civilized world, over all the cities of historic fame and all the great nations of antiquity. It rested upon an overwhelming military force and was met by no threat of physical resistance from within nor were there controlling influences to be counted on such as monarchy has commonly to face. Of political assemblies, the popular comitia passed speedily away, and the Senate became the instrument of his will, consisting chiefly of his nominees and never asserting the right of independent action. There was no power of privilege to face him, such as orders of nobility and corporations have claimed and held in other states. There was no powerful civil service or bureaucracy, such as can thwart while seeming to obey and afford a potent but impalpable resistance even to a despot's will. There was no sentiment of public morality or national pride that he might not dare to outrage, for the people of Rome were a mixed rabble, swollen rapidly by slaves who had gained the boon of freedom and recruited from every race under the sun. The men of dignity and moral worth might frown or shudder when Caligula played mad pranks and Nero acted on the public stage, but their displeasure mattered little if the populace were merry and the army loyal. Religion itself had no counteracting force, for at Rome it was more a matter of formal observance than of moral faith. It was not organized in outward forms to balance the authority of the civil power, and by a curious anomaly, the emperor was at once the highest functionary of the state religion, as supreme pontiff, 
and was also soon to be deified and to become the object of the veneration of the world. It was a system of unqualified despotism, without ministry, nobles, church, or parliaments, such as it is impossible to parallel, such as was likely to produce the best and worst of governors, according as men were sobered by the responsibilities or maddened by the license of absolute power. From the imperial will there was no escape. The emperor might and did commonly observe the constitutional forms and act on the sentence of the courts of law, or he might dispense with such tedious formalities and send a quiet message to bid a man set his house in order or let his veins be opened in a bath. A few soldiers could carry the death warrant to the greatest of his subjects in a far-off land and execute it in the midst of his retainers. There seemed no hope of flight, for only barbarians or deserts lay beyond the Roman world. But in return there was no escape for the emperor himself. He could not weary of the cares of state and lay his burdens down in peace. There was no cloistered calm for him like that which Christian princes have sometimes found. He could not abdicate in favor of his natural successor. He must rule on, to be the mark for the dagger of every malcontent, and see a possible rival and successor in every great man or military chief. The emperor's power again was based on physical force. It rested on no sanctions of religion, noble birth, immemorial usage, or definite election, for it was of revolutionary origin, and it took its very title from the power of the sword. Yet after Julius the early emperors were not men of war, and had no military policy or ambition. They had everything to lose and nothing seemingly to gain from war. The balance of the empire might be lost while the chief was on the distant frontier, and a successful general might prove a dangerous usurper. They seldom even saw the armies, for these were far away upon the borders, and at home there was so little need of armed repression that a handful of the city watch and a few thousand of the household troops sufficed for the police of all the central countries of the empire. Municipal self-rule kept the towns contented, and though the nationalities had lost their ancient freedom, they seldom showed a wish to strike a blow to win it back. In Rome itself, the old nobility was little to be feared. They had no powerful following of clients or retainers, no rallying cry nor hold upon the imaginations of the masses, and their feelings might be outraged, their fortunes pillaged with impunity, if only the populace could be kept in cheerful humor and the praetorians and legions did not stir. End of section 21